You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee offers us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. To support this podcast, go to renewedheartministries.com and click donate. And this makes me wonder about the effectiveness of our own protest. When we do protest, how do we make it matter? How do we make it count like Jesus did in Mark 11, 11? And again, change for those being harmed, it never happens fast enough. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery, and this is episode 361, and our title this week is Jesus and Protest. This week's reading is John 2, 13 through 22, and actually, I prefer Mark's version of the story. In Mark 11... 15 through 18, it says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And he taught them, he said, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teachings. So so most scholars believe that out of the four canonical gospels that we have today, Mark was written the earliest and John the latest. And in the passage for this week, Mark's author conflates and places in the mouth of Jesus two passages from the Hebrew scriptures, one from Isaiah and the other from Jeremiah. In Isaiah 56, verse 7, it says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And Jeremiah 7, 11 states, Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. In Mark's gospel, the temple in Jerusalem was the capital building of the temple state. The temple state centered in Jerusalem was not a purely religious system as we think of Christian churches today. There was no separation of church and state in Jesus's culture. The temple state was a religious, political, social, and economic system that governed all aspects of Jewish society. It's telling that in the revolt leading up to the the Jewish-Roman War of 66 to 69 CE, when the rebels took over the temple, the scene was not like a, a church or a synagogue, but but rather like a banking institution. The rebels found the debt records for the poor and burned them. And in one sense, it was a religious act for those who considered faithfulness to the Jubilee or debt cancellation of the Torah to be faithfulness to the God of the Torah. But it was also an economic and political act too. By the time John's gospel was written, once we leave Mark and we go on to John, the story of Jesus in the temple it's just simply evolved. It's become concerned not with a system that exploits the poor, but one that defiles purely religious space. The writer's emphasis isn't even on the temple as a building at the at the center of a system that perpetuates poverty. It's instead on the temple as a symbol for Jesus's body, which would be crucified 
and then resurrected. And that you'll find that in John 2, verse 14, and then verses 19 through 20. And I understand why so many people have focused on John's version of the story, especially recently. Many Christians have begun their, their stride towards the Easter holiday and its focus on the death and resurrection of, of the Christ. I find Mark's political and economic emphasis on the systemic exploitation of the poor much more helpful at this time in the U.S., however. It's important to connect the context of Jesus's temple protest in Mark with the other acts and statements that day. In Mark 12, 38 through 40, it says, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus, Jesus concern here. It's the economic exploitation of the, of the most vulnerable in his society, how widows are being forced into poverty. He's not concerned that something is being done uh, incorrectly in, in the temple's worship system. He's concerned about the poor. Mark continues, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more, more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on." This statement, it's not praise for the widow as so many Christians interpret it today. He's just talked about how the temple's economic system uh, was devouring widows' houses. Uh, Jesus is critiquing a system that leaves widows with nothing left to live on. And this story ends uh, in verse uh, uh, 41 through chapter 13, verse 2. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what, what a magnificent building. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. In Mark, Jesus isn't speaking about his own death and resurrection as he is in John. He's speaking about how exploitative systems are not sustainable and will eventually crumble under the weight of their own injustice. The present economic system that we have today of consumption and massive profit at others' expense is unsustainable ecologically. Jeff Bezos has once again become the richest person in the world with a net worth of $191.2 billion in the midst of a global pandemic with an economic displacement that's worse than during the Great Depression. I think, too, of, of President Biden's reluctance recently to cancel student debt, even though it was one of his campaign pledges. Uh, but what stands out to me most is how immigration in the U.S. has been handled over the last four years. And I hope the next four years will bring 
desperately needed change. The U.S. immigration system has a, a long racist, racist history. And, and rather than America becoming a multiracial democracy, its immigration system is designed to keep America as a country where white people are still the majority and where those white lives simply matter more. Than, than the lives of those that are not white. And for a, a detailed discussion on, on the history of, the racist history of immigration in the U.S., I want to recommend to you um, uh, an easy-to-understand recounting of that history in, in, in uh, uh, Kelly Brown Douglas's book, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God. It's well worth your time uh, to give that a read. Over the past four years, for example, we've seen the immoral crime of the U.S. terrorizing families by ripping children away from their parents just because they sought asylum here. Words from Emma Lazarus's famous 1883 sonnet, The, the New Colossus, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Those words have been eclipsed by a white nationalism and, and white supremacy. If ever there was a setting in which Jesus followers should follow Jesus in flipping the tables of a system that was irreparably harming those who were already vulnerable. Family separation was it. Some Christians actually did respond, but I'm sad to say not many. I'm thankful to see the Biden administration moving toward change on this issue. I'm thankful to see it using more inclusive language, such as non-citizens and undocumented non-citizen instead of alien or illegal alien, referring to integration of immigrants into society instead of their assimilation and abandoning language that dehumanizes immigrants or is racist. This is undoubtedly a step toward a welcoming America. And, and while I'm thankful uh, for these beginnings, I want to see more than just linguistic changes too. It's going to take real policy change, real action to turn around the Trump administration's hostile stance and inhuman response uh, to immigrants. We have a chance to do something fundamentally different over the next four years. And my hope is that we transition away from the immigration policies of the past that, in, that have endeavored to protect uh, whiteness and instead take genuine steps to affirm the future of America as a multi racial democracy where every voice matters and everyone, regardless of race, religion, net worth, ability, gender, orientation, gender expression, they can all have a seat at the table. And I know these changes don't ever happen fast enough. And we have the potential, though, at this moment to, to, to take another leap forward. My favorite part of Mark's story this week is actually found in Mark 11. Mark 11, verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Jesus's temple protest, very simply, according to this passage, was supposed to happen the first day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. But by the time he arrived at the, the temple courtyard, after the what, what Christians call the triumphal entry, it was too late. 
in the day, and 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 there were not enough people in the temple courtyard for his protest to make much of a difference. So Mark states that he goes back to Bethany with his disciples, spends the night there, and then comes back the following day to flip the tables there in the courtyard. And this makes me wonder about the effectiveness of our own protest. When we do protest, how do we make it matter? How do we make it count like Jesus did in Mark 11, 11? And again, change for those being harmed, it never happens fast enough. But in each of our circles of influence, we have today all the potential for change that this day brings. Each day, we can still move uh, toward a more just, safe, compassionate, inclusive future. We can move that future closer. So let's do it. Heart group application this week, we at Renewed Heart Ministries, we're continuing to ask all of our heart groups not to meet together physically at this time. Uh, we are making improvements within the U.S. with the pandemic, but we are not uh, in the clear yet. It is not safe yet. So please stay virtually connected. Practice your physical distancing with one another. When you do go out, uh, please remember to, to to keep wearing your mask. Remember, a, ma- a mask is a, a, a an act of love for, for others. Continue to wash your hands. stopping the spread of the virus. And this is also a time, remember, to practice the resource sharing and the mutual aid that's found in the Gospels, where we can take care of one another and make sure that we're prioritizing the protecting of, of our most vulnerable among us. So number one this week, share something that spoke to you from this week's podcast or Eastside episode with your heart group. Number two, share three characteristics that you feel a protest must possess in order to be effective in our social climate today. And then number three, what can you do this week, big or small, to continue setting in motion the work of shaping our world into a safe, compassionate, just home for everyone? Thanks for checking in with us today, right where you are. Keep living in love, choosing compassion, taking action, and working towards justice. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.